promises that we believe in your uh, resurrected son, uh, that we believe that we are children of the promise through faith in him, that you are building your church, uh, and Lord, that uh, the glorious inheritance where we get to see you face to face and worship with a people from every tribe and tongue and nation is coming. And so by faith we believe that. We believe in your Holy Spirit who will teach us now, Lord. Uh, may you get all the glory and would you show us Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Global diversity practice. Uh, there are, if you've not heard of them, uh, they're a gl global leader in diversity, equity, uh, and inclusion. They offer specialist advice. Uh, they've advised uh, notable organizations such as Kellogg's, Taylor Wimpy, uh, the World Bank, Santander. And what they do is they seek to help these businesses improve their diversity, equity, and inclusion processes and practices at a kind of senior management and recruitment level. Uh, their definition in a nutshell of, of diversity is this. It's about empowering people by respecting and appreciating what makes them different in terms of ethnicity and national origin. So respecting and appreciating what makes them different in terms of ethnicity and national origin. Um, one of their strap lines is they want a better world through unlocking the power of inclusion. I think we can say yes to that. They really do believe in inclusion. They really do believe in diversity. What about you? In our day, as I read the culture at least, we can have a tendency to be quite polarized uh, on this topic. Um, uh, you might have a tendency, if you're part of, say, a dominant culture, to fear, to fear difference, maybe to fear the loss of your own heritage, to fear, in some sense, maybe the dilution of what makes you a distinct people or person. In some ways, it makes you kind of want as little diversity as possible. And then there's the other polarized opposite. You may be from a minority culture. And actually, you see just those in the majority culture just as oppressive. You fail to see any good in that culture, and therefore you would prefer just as much diversity as possible. Is there a way to be able to celebrate cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities without being divided? That's the question. What does the Bible say? Well, that's the answer. And so we're going to look at that under two headings if you're taking notes. Number one, diversity is good according to God. Look at creation. Diversity is good according to God. Look at creation. So at the most basic level, uh, we can see God's absolute love for diversity. Um, as some of you know, I'm a keen uh, novice gardener, and I'm at the beginning of my gardening journey. I'm actually quite overwhelmed at times with the amount of variety of plants that I could have in my very small garden. I love the classics. I like lilies, roses, tulips, lupins, foxgloves, fox gloves, dahlias. Um, but now I've discovered things like climbers, ivy and clematis and honeysuckle. Then there's the food-bearing plants like fruit bushes, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, uh, red currants. There are trees like apples and pears and oranges and plums and nectarine and peach and banana and apricot and fig and mango. And did you know that there were 50 different types of kiwi? I didn't until preparing this sermon. Vegetables like cabbages and beans and parsnips and swede and pumpkin and squash. God loves 
diversity. God loves variety. Genesis 1.29 says this, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. God loves diversity. We see it in the plants. Uh, I came across this article written in, um, it was May of this year, and uh, scientists went out to discover a place to, to try and harvest uh, new uh, oil. Um, and what they discovered instead was 5,000 brand new species uh, deep in the Pacific Ocean. 5,000 new ones just from discovering, trying to discover some oil in this patch of uh, 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 underneath the ocean on the seabed. Uh, scientists have discovered more than 5,000 new species, the article says, living on the seabed of an untouched area of the Pacific Ocean. And this has been identified as a future hotspot for deep sea mining. So there's some, uh, some tensions there, as you can imagine. And it made me think, how many species of animal do we have on Earth? Estimates vary, but it's somewhere in the region of about 9 million, from mollusks and insects. Uh, for those that love spiders, apparently there are 110,000 different varieties of arachnids. So... Uh, good luck to you. Uh, fishes and crustaceans and reptiles and birds and amphibians and mammals. God loves diversity. <laughs> Genesis 1 verse 24 says this, And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and all the wild animals, each according to its kind. God simply loves diversity. He loves difference. And we see it especially in the crown of his creation. If you've got your Bible open, look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So human beings are made in the image of God. That means they're like a mirror. They reflect God in some way. Uh, they are to rule over creation. It says that in verse 26. They are made with unique dignity and worth, separate from the other creatures. No, none of the other creatures are made in God's image, only human beings. And there's diversity there, not just in the maleness and the femaleness, but in, in the offspring that they produced. The unfolding of the, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, records the different nations that arose from humanity's earliest parents to the point where today we have an earth that's inhabited with somewhere around eight, I think we've just passed the eight billion mark of image bearers. Eight billion. Spanning the entire globe from um, 195 different uh, nations. But actually the, the modern nation state is kind of, um, to, to talk about that in the past is, is uh, an anachronism. It's not, it's not kind of how it worked. Uh, depending on how you count the numbers, we don't count them by the physical borders that we measure things by today. In, the, in biblical times, when we talked about people groups, they were of kind of an ethnic, cultural, and linguistic distinction. And if you count those numbers, you've not got 195 nations. You have somewhere in the region between 16 and 20,000 different people groups on this planet. The Adi Dariva in India the Yadav in India, the Hui in China, the Nigerian uh, Fulani people, the Bambara in Mali, the Yava Bunyuma San in Indonesia, the Afghan Tajik in Afghanistan, the Kashmiri people in India. Billions of men and women spanning thousands of cultural expressions with a myriad of skin tones and languages, of heritage variations, 
all bearing uniquely God's image, reflecting him in special and unique ways. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says this, From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So all of these nations, all of these people groups, all of these ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds are made by the same God and made in the image of God. That's the Bible's teaching. It's glorious. And so clearly, a clear implication of this teaching is that among all of these people groups, among all of these nations, among all of these nationalities, there's not one superior culture, is there? There's not one superior nation. There's not one superior people. The racial policies that that sought to classify people based on blood purity, uh, the teaching from which was actually inherited from the erroneous science of eugenics that came from North America uh, and Europe, it couldn't be more antithetical to the Bible's teaching, could it? And if you truly understand the Bible's teaching on this, then there is no place for superiority. Each nation is made up of image bearers of dignity and value and worth. Jesus echoed uh, this teaching, affirming that uh, God made human beings in his own image. We can read that in Mark chapter 10. He emphasized their, their dignity and their worth. And what Jesus uttered by lip, he demonstrated in his life. Uh, though Jesus was a Jew, he actually transgressed cultural and social norms to demonstrate uh, his love for different people groups. In fact, Jesus actually enraged fellow Jews by his inclusion of moral and ethnic outcasts into his kingdom. A one eyewitness account recalls Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman. You can find that in uh, John chapter 4. Uh, and for those of us that don't know, Samaritans were considered racially impure by many Jews. Talking to one, let alone a morally suspect female, was culturally explosive. And yet Jesus defied all common customs in the name of absolute love and compassion towards image bearers. In fact, Samaritans actually featured quite regularly in Jesus' teaching, often appearing as the good guy or the one to emulate in the story, defying the inbuilt tension and the tacit racism expressed by many of his contemporaries. In another eyewitness account, it includes uh, Jesus having an exchange with a Roman soldier whose servant was ill. The Roman soldier asked Jesus to merely just say the word, and he knew that his servant would be healed. And on hearing this, Jesus said this, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You can read that in Matthew 8. And the implication is here that this man, this Roman soldier, along with others from east and west, from all the nations surrounding, will be included in God's kingdom. Now just let that sink in. This is a Roman soldier he's talking to, a non-Jew, an accomplice in the subjugation of Israel, saying that he has great faith. This is, I was struggling to find an analogy, but this is similar to a Ukrainian farmer in occupied eastern territory showing great compassion for the Russian soldier who, at the same time, is having his country and his nation under subjugation, seeing only the soldier's humanity. 
Jesus is the standard of how we are to treat other people. No ethnicity has market share on cultural excellence. No culture or country are inferior. The image of God necessitates it, and the teaching of Jesus Christ confirms it. Great. That settles it. I can stand down now. I can write to the, the UN and the, the government nations of the world, remind them of this teaching, what the Bible says, uh, that humans are made in the image of God, and they'll all start to get along, right? We'll start to see the dissolving of racial tensions, and peace and harmony will flow through all the world. No, not quite. Sadly, uh, the mere telling of this truth, though it is true, is likely uh, to do very little, because the hatred due to skin color ethnic makeup, country of origin, it runs deep. Um, listen to the way global diversity practice put it. Um, what they say they do is they use the latest in neuroscience uh, to discover patterns in human brain behavior. Uh, they use this research to identify unconscious bias, uh, blind spots, mind bugs, they call them, cognitive errors, confirmation bias, and micro inequities. Uh, the um, University College London say that unconscious bias is triggered by our brain automatically making quick judgments, um, influenced by our background, personal experiences, societal stereotypes, and cultural contexts. Basically, scientists are saying that there are these kind of deep, subversive, and often undetected cognitive behaviors that make us either prefer some people or dislike others. They make us favor some people, but hate others. And for a variety of often unconscious reasons. And for this reason, unity amid diversity is just not possible. And the Bible agrees, but it's much worse than that. There is a deep-seated issue that courses through the veins of every human being that makes unity amid diversity virtually impossible. And it's not purely cognitive. It's cardiac. It's an issue to do with the heart, the human heart, the seat of the emotions and will and being. Racism and prejudice and hatred of others stems from the sickness and the malady that is present in every human heart. The Bible calls it sin. You see, the Bible teaches uh, that both humanity is made in the image of God, but humanity is also radically fallen and rebellious and depraved. And it, just watch the six o'clock news. I don't feel like I need to kind of convince you of that reality that human beings are bad, and yet human beings are also, in some ways, good, as they're made in the image of God. Man is um, an architectural masterpiece that's in ruins. Man is a Rembrandt with a gigantic tear in the canvas and paint sprayed across the front of it. And it affects every single human being, and therefore every single culture, every single ethnicity, every single people group. Institutions like the Global Diversity Institute can run workshops. They can produce data to show how human beings have bias, uh, bias but they've ultimately got no power to change it. Diversity laws may go away in helping, raising awareness of injustice, protecting vulnerable groups, but they cannot deal with the true problem of the human heart. And if this is new to you, the incredible message of Christianity is that God did something to make this possible, to make true unity amid diversity possible. God loves diversity, and we see what he did to make true diversity and unity possible 2,000 years ago 
on a Roman execution device. Jesus Christ, who we just sung about, the God who became flesh, the one who made the nations, came and died in place of the nations on that cross, bearing our sin as a substitute. He was buried in a tomb, the one for the many, and rose again three days later. The book of Ephesians, uh, one of the books in the Bible, um, one of the first Christians writes this. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For he, that's Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups, we'll get to those in a minute, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, as he was nailed to the cross, the law with its commands and regulations. Why did he do that? Well, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them through the cross to God, by which he put to death their hostility. Now, the context here, the two people groups that he's talking about are Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. You could argue that there was no greater dislike between these two people. One derogative term that Jews had for Gentiles was dogs. They were called dogs. And Gentiles weren't too favorable among Jews either. And yet Jesus destroyed that barrier, putting to death the rancid hostility that was real between them through his death on the cross, creating in himself one new humanity reconciling them both, bringing them both to God. There were real barriers, real hatred, real hostility, and they can't be overcome by unconscious bias training. No amount of open minds workshops will stay the racism and the hatred that runs deep in human hearts. We need the ruins rebuilt. We need the new image painting upon the canvas. We need mind renewal and heart renewal. And praise God, Jesus Christ alone is the one who does that through his cross, through his resurrection, through faith in him. He's doing that. Jesus' love for humanity did not restrain itself to one culture, but he poured out his love on all cultures. God loves diversity and he demonstrated it by providing a unifying sacrifice once for all. I do wonder, if you're not a Christian here today and you've kind of stumbled in here or you've been invited by a friend, I, I wonder how this teaching is falling on your ears. Do you care for diversity? Is that one of the reasons maybe that you've, been, you've come into this service? Are you keen to hear what the Bible says about it? Is your standard of humanity as, as high as the Bible's? that human beings, all of them, regardless of, of culture and background, are made in the image of God? If you say you love human beings and you love diversity and you love these people, then surely you need to love the God who created them and the God who rescued them through his death on the cross. If you want to find out more about the teaching of the Bible on humanity and on God and on this message of the gospel that we've been talking about, and we have some free copies of an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, um, just in the foyer here, the, the Gospel of Mark it's called, we would love to give you that as a gift. It's yours for free. Take it away. Don't feel like you need to talk to anybody. You could just grab one of those and read it on your own. But actually, if you've already started reading and you, you are keen to find out a little bit more, we would love to read that with you. We would love to give up time, go for a coffee, have a read of that, ask questions, let you ask questions. 
If you're wanting to do that, please come and see me afterwards. I'm going to be outside in the foyer. But this teaching actually impacts us as Christians, as members here at Charlotte Chapel. We've got the privilege here of um, being uh, in the company of somewhere around 60 different nationalities and nations. Praise God, this is in many ways a a multicultural, multi-ethnic gathering. We have an entire ministry dedicated to international fellowship. But surely the gospel calls for more. And it does. It calls for radical racial integration. Ask this question, who do you find yourself gravitating towards? Is it people that are just like yourself? Here's a quick litmus test. Who were the last 10 guests around your dinner table? Who are the last 10 people that you prayed for? Who are your conversation partners on a regular basis? Who do you have round for lunch? Who is your prayer focus? Because our prayer, our conversation, and our fellowship focus should be just as diverse as the church in which we worship, right? God loves diversity. Look at creation. Second point, God loves that diversity is good according to God. Look at the church. We've already seen that Jesus showed compassion to different cultures. And on the cross, he died for all people, all nations. Um, in her excellent book, which I've been particularly helped as I've prepared for this, it's called 12 Hard Questions for the World's uh, Largest Religion, and it's on sale at the bookstore uh, out there. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes this. If you care about diversity, don't miss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. If you care about diversity, don't, miss, don't dismiss Christianity. It is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, and multicultural movement in all of history. She's got a lot more to say. One of the greatest records of the early church is found in the Bible. It's found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, shortened to Acts. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his once scared but now emboldened followers were proclaiming his message, his message of the coming judgment but the reality of sins forgiven, when around 3,000 image bearers from at least 15 different nations came to believe in Jesus and were brought into the church. Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 says this. Acts 2, 8 to 11 Uh, Read from verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, uh, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, uh, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. All these nations, all these peoples talk about diversity, but it didn't stop there. Keep reading Acts. Uh, One of the earliest converts that we know 
um, uh, was an official who was, an atten- who was attending the Queen of Ethiopia. He was basically like the, um, the head of the central bank in Ethiopia, okay? And he heard the message of Jesus' sacrifice for sins, and he believed, and he became a Christian. And now this uh, Ethiopian eunuch now went back to East Africa with this gospel message. You may have heard the accusation that Christianity is just a white Western religion. That's nonsense. Christianity was present and flourishing in Africa a thousand years before the first European colonists entered African shores. A significant number of the earliest Christian influences that shaped doctrine were African. When the Portuguese landed in Ethiopia in 1493, they found to their shock that there were churches everywhere. And even today, more people identify as Christian in Africa than human beings live in the United States alone. Double, in fact. Christianity is diverse. The church shows it. The book of Acts continues. Uh, A short time later, the message of Jesus had sprung out of Jerusalem and it had now reached a place called Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey. And so many non-Jews believed that actually this church in Antioch became a hub. And now it was sending out missionaries to the known world, to go and proclaim the message of the risen Jesus. And one of these missionaries that was sent out was a man named Paul, and he planted churches in Crete and Greece and Macedonia and Turkey. A multiplicity of nations and peoples, all united under one faith. The church from its deception was de facto multi-ethnic and multicultural. It was diverse in its ethnicity, in its culture, in its background. It was, in, it was diverse in its socioeconomic status as well. We think that we've got issues with class divide today, uh, but go to the ancient world, and they had deep problems. You try and find anywhere in the ancient world where you would get a slave girl, a Roman soldier, and a rich entrepreneurial businesswoman worshipping in the same house, you wouldn't get it. And yet this happened in the church in Philippi. How are we to think of the kind of modern, the modern diversity movement? I think if we're trying to be generous and try to identify a nugget of the most good, I think a heart of the diversity and inclusion movement is belonging. And they even recognize this now. You probably won't be able to read that, but you've got equity, inclusion, and diversity in this Venn diagram. But in, bang in the center, you've got the desire to belong. There's a desire to belong. And that desire to belong is good, right? We all want to belong. But the foundation is flawed. They say in that central bit there, they say that um, to get belonging, views, beliefs, and values need to be integrated. But you cannot unite diametrically opposed beliefs in reality. You can't have up being up and up being down at the same time. The shared and unifying reality must be truth. Paul, again, I mentioned him earlier, one of the earliest Christians. He wrote this way in his letters to a couple of the churches that he'd been involved in planting, or that he'd had some connection in planting, the church at Colossae and the church at Galatia. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, he writes this. It should be on the screen. There is not Greek and Jew... Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. 
He says something similar to the church at Galatia. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it wasn't that national heritage was of zero importance. God doesn't flatten out culture. It wasn't that um, Paul was suggesting to remove gender altogether. The sexes complement one, one another. They teach something unique about God, and uh, Paul and Jesus have something to say about the sexes in the rest of Scripture. And it's not that being poor or rich is insignificant. Again, the Bible has a lot to say about what we do with our money. But it's that what was of supreme importance was the church's unity in Jesus. There was something uh, so transcending reality, so universal, that the very real and fundamental elements that mostly divide people, nationality, socioeconomic status, gender, they fade in comparison to the unity that God's people have in and through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The unity in Jesus, being a child of the living God, that's what the Bible describes Christians as. Having our sins forgiven, being a citizen of heaven, is far more significant even than our maleness and femaleness and in our country of origin. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is radical, right? This is Christianity. Rather than being against diversity, Christianity exemplifies it. It magnifies it because Christianity gives a proper basis for diversity, an unwavering unity that cannot be taken away. Christianity is a movement for all people groups because it centers on Jesus Christ, the maker and the savior of all people groups. Where is all this heading? As I come in to close, um, the global diversity practice has helped organizations, and this is from their website, in every industry sector and every corner of the globe uh, to address issues that affect business performance and growth. This is their aim. This is their intention. They believe in diversity and inclusion, and one of their aims is to affect and to implement business performance and growth. GDP are seeking to increase GDP. Right? Their end goal is financial performance and enhancement. What about the end goal of God? What about the end goal of Jesus Christ? What about the end goal of Christianity? God's end goal is to bring ultimate joy to a diverse people unified under the name of Jesus Christ to his glory. That's the end goal. Psalm 86 verse 9 says this, All the nations that you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, all the nations. In the beginning, God created a diverse humanity so that what they would do is they would go across the entire globe creating culture and they would bring glory to his name. A people of every skin tone and variety and type and, and cultural flavor would bring him glory and praise. But human beings rebelled and yet in God's kindness, he sent a savior to rescue all people groups, to restore the ruins, to rectify the the blotted uh, image and to make something truly beautiful and truly glorious out of it. The, the Old Testament pointed forward to what this time would look like. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. 
The book of Zechariah says this, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew, the hem of his robe, and they'll say, let's go with you because we have heard that God is with you. The end game for God and diversity is a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group all united in one glorious chorus of praise to the God who made them, thanking him for his marvelous deeds, for his rescuing of the nations. And the diversity of worship in that goal, in that end, in that new creation will be so much more beautiful, so much more intense, so much deeper than had it only been one people group, one nation. I was um, watching a, a play of an orchestra last night and just taking in the beauty of what happens. It's not a regular thing that I do, but I was doing this last night <laughs> to appreciate it. And um, each instrument in an orchestra has its own beauty and its own glory and its own worth, doesn't it, right? The piano, the violin, the double bass, the flute, glorious on their own but when brought together in a symphony of praise it is so much more deep it is so much more meaningful it is so much more profound and the reality is in the new creation God is rescuing a people from every tribe and tongue and nation Nigerians Zimbabweans Scots Argentinians English Welsh Chinese Indonesian Japanese. All of our cultures are marred by sin. And yet, through Christ, God is restoring the ruined image so that we will not lose our culture, but that it will be brought to a higher state of glory as we are remade in the image of Christ and as he sanctifies the unique elements that bring him glory. And like this wonderful orchestra, the praise of God's people in the new creation, free from sin, but with all of the goodness that God has given us through our various experiences and cultural heritage, will bring him great glory. Let me close with these words. After this, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The church is the foretaste of this glorious reality and it's available to all that come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are... Um, blown away when we see the diversity of your goodness in creation as we look at the created order from plants and animals and as we see the nations that you have made as we see the people groups that bear your image and Lord we recognize that each and every one is, is fallen in sin and yet because of your great love as we were hearing about at the start of our service you sent your only son your one and only son to come and live and suffer and die and rise again so that all people groups might come to faith in him and that you, Lord, according to your own purpose and wisdom, might restore the fallen ruins of humanity 
that you might uh, restore to them the image of Christ and that you might gain great glory for yourself and that through the nations, Lord, each with their own perspective and heritage and background would bring you a different, a different sense of praise in the orchestra, in the symphony of the worship of your people. Lord, what a glory that is. We thank you for your marvelous plan and your marvelous deeds. Would we be those that, uh, that go out proclaiming the gospel that is for the nations, the risen Savior who is for the nations? And Lord, would you be pleased to use as we pray? Gain all the glory for your own son, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to stand and sing our final hymn. Stand and sing. <laughs>